Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 56. Barty titled, Barty Walked. And ultimately, Barty carried a pie for his mother on one of her delivery days, wary of his balance and solemn with responsibility. He moved from a crib to a bed of his own, with guardrails, months ahead of the average toddler. Within a week, he requested that the rails be let down. For eight nights thereafter, Agnes padded the floor with folded blankets on both sides of the boy's bed, insurance against the middle of the nightfall. On the eighth morning, she discovered that Barty had returned the blankets to the closet from which she had gotten them. They were not jammed haphazardly on the shelves, the sure evidence of a child's work, but were folded and stacked as neatly as Agnes herself would have stored them. The boy never mentioned what he'd done, and his mother ceased worrying about him falling out of bed. From his first birthday to his third, Barty made worthless all the child care and child development books that a first-time mother relied on to know what to expect of her offspring and when. Barty grew and coped and learned according to his own clock. The boy's difference was defined as much by what he didn't do as by what he did. For one thing, he didn't observe the terrible twos, the period of Tyler rebellion that usually frayed the nerves of most patient parents. No tantrums for the pie lady son, no bossiness, no crankiness. Uncommonly healthy, he didn't suffer croup, flu, sinusitis, or most of the ailments to which other children were vulnerable. Frequently, People told Agnes that she should find an agent for Barty, as he was wonderfully photogenic. Modeling and acting careers, they assured her, were his for the taking. Though her son was indeed a fine-looking lad, Agnes knew that he wasn't as exceptionally handsome as many perceived him to be. Rather than his looks, what made Barty so appealing, what made him seem extraordinarily good-looking, were other qualities. An unusual gracefulness for a child. Such a physical easiness in every movement and posture that it seemed as though some curious personal relationship with time had allowed him 20 years to become a three-year-old. An unfailingly affable temperament and quick smile that possessed his entire face, including his mesmerizing green-blue eyes. Perhaps most affecting of all, his remarkable good health was expressed in the lustrous sheen of his thick hair, in the golden-pink glow of his summer-touched skin, in every physical aspect of him until there were times that he seemed radiant. In July 1967, at two and a half, he finally contracted his first cold, an all-season virus with a mean bite. His throat was sore, but he didn't fuss or even complain. He swallowed his medicine without resistance, and though he rested occasionally, he played with toys and paced through picture books with as much pleasure as ever. On the second morning of Barty's illness, Agnes came downstairs and found him at the kitchen table, in his pajamas, happily applying unconventional hues to a scene in the coloring book. When she complimented him on being such a good little soldier, abiding his cold with no complaint, he shrugged. Without looking up from the coloring book, he said, It's just here. What do you mean? My cold. Your cold is just here? It's not everywhere. Agnes delighted in their conversations. Barty was far ahead of the language learning curve for his age, but he was still a child, and his observations were filled with innocence and charm. You mean your cold is in, like, your nose but not in your feet? No, Mommy. Colds don't go in anybody's feet. Feet. Yeah, he confirmed, applying a blue crayon to a grinning bunny that was dancing with a squirrel. You mean it's like with you in the kitchen, but not if you go into the living room? Your cold has a mind of its own? That's really silly, 
You're the one who said your cold's just here. Maybe stays in the kitchen, hoping it'll get a piece of pie. My cold is just here, he expanded. Not every place I am. So, you're not just here in the kitchen with your cold? Nope. Where else are you, Master Lampion? In the backyard playing? Somewhere, yeah. In the living room reading? Somewhere, yeah. All at the same time, huh? Tongue clamped between his teeth as he concentrated on keeping the blue crayon within the lines of the bunny. Barty nodded. Yeah. The telephone rang, putting an end to their chat. But Agnes will remember the substance of it later on that year, on the day before Christmas, when Barty took a walk in the rain and forever changed his mother's understanding of the world and of her own existence. Unlike most other toddlers, Barty was entirely comfortable with change. From bottle to drinking glass, from crib to open bed, from favorite foods to untried flavors, he delighted in the new. Although Agnes usually remained near at hand, Barty was as pleased to be put temporarily in the care of Maria Gonzalez as in the care of Edom, and he smiled as brightly for his dour Uncle Jacob as for everyone. He never passed through a phase during which he grew resistant to hugging or kissing. He was a hand-holding, cuddling boy to whom displays of affection came easily. The currents of irrational fear, which bring periodic turbulence to virtually every childhood, didn't disturb the smoothly flowing river of Barty's first three years. He showed no fear of the doctor or the dentist or the barber. Never was he afraid to fall asleep. And having fallen asleep, he appeared to have only pleasant dreams. Darkness, the one source of childhood fear that most adults never quite outgrow, held no terror for Barty. Although for a while his bedroom featured a Mickey Mouse nightlight, the miniature lamp was not there to soothe the boy, but to quiet his mother's nerves, because she worried about him waking alone in blackness. Perhaps this particular worry was not ordinary maternal concern. If a sixth sense is at work in all of us, then perhaps subconsciously Agnes was aware of the tragedy to come. The tumors. The surgery. The blindness. Agnes's suspicion that Barty would be a child prodigy had grown from seed to full fruit on the morning of the child's first birthday, when he had sat in his high chair, counting green grape and apple pies. Through the following two years, ample proof of high intelligence and wondrous talents ripened Agnes's suspicion into conviction. Precisely what type of prodigy Barty might be was initially not easy to deduce. He revealed many talents rather than just one. Given a child-sized harmonica, he extemporized simplified versions of songs he had heard on the radio. The Beatles' All You Need Is Love, The Box Tops The Letter, Stevie Wonder's I Was Made To Love Her. After hearing a tune once, Barty could play a recognizable rendition. Although the small tin and plastic harmonica was more toy than genuine instrument, the boy blew and siphoned surprisingly complex music from it. As far as Agnes can tell, he never hit a sour tone. One of his favorite gifts for Christmas in 1967 was a 12-hole chromatic harmonica with 48 reeds providing a full three-octave range. Even in his little hands, and with the limitations of his small mouth, this more sophisticated instrument enabled him to produce full-bodied versions of any song that appealed to him. He had a talent as well for language. From an early age, Barty sat contentedly as long as his mother would read to him, exhibiting none of the short attention span common to children. He expressed a preference for sitting side by side, and he asked her to slide one finger along each line of type so he could see precisely the right word as she spoke it. In this manner, he taught himself to read early in his third year. 
Soon, he dispensed with picture books and progressed to short novels for more accomplished readers, and then rapidly to books meant for young adults. Tom Swift adventures and Nancy Drew mysteries captivated him through the summer and early autumn. Writing came with reading, and in a notebook, he began to make entries about points of interest in the stories that he enjoyed. His diary of a book reader, as he titled it, fascinated Agnes, who read it with his permission. These notes to himself were enthusiastic, earnest, and charming. But literally, month by month, Agnes noticed that they grew less naive, more complex, more contemplative. Having been a volunteer instructor of English to 20 adult students over the years, having taught Maria Elena Gonzalez to speak impeccable English without a significant accent, Agnes was little needed as a teacher to her son. Even more than other children, he asked why with numbing regularity. Why this and why that, but never the same question twice, and often as not, he already knew the answer that he sought from her and was only confirming the accuracy of his deduction. He was such an effective autodidact, he schooled himself better than any college professors that could have been assigned to him. Agnes found this turn of events amazing, amusing, ironic, and a little sad. She would have dearly loved to teach a boy how to read and write, to see his knowledge and competence slowly flower under her care. Although she fully supported Barty's exploration of his gifts, and although she was proud of his astounding achievements, she felt that his swift advancement was robbing her of some of the shared joy of his childhood, even though he remained in so many ways a child. Judging by his great pleasure in learning, Barty didn't feel robbed of anything. To him, the world was an orange of infinite layers, which he peeled and savored with increasing delight. By November 1967, the Father Brown Detective series, written for mystery-loving adults by G.K. Chesterton, thrilled Barty. This series of books will retain a special place in his heart for the rest of his life, as will Robert Heinlein's The Star Beast, which was amongst his Christmas gifts that year. Yet for all of his love of reading and of music, events suggested that for mathematics he had a still greater aptitude. Before he taught himself to read books, he also taught himself numbers, and then how to read a clock. The significance of time had a more profound impact on him than Agnes could understand, perhaps because acquiring of an awareness of the infinite nature of the universe and the finite nature of each human life, and fully understanding the implications of this knowledge, takes most of us until early adulthood, if not later. Whereas for Barty, the vast glories of the universe and the comparatively humble nature of human existence were recognized, contemplated, and absorbed in a matter of weeks. For a while, he enjoyed being challenged to figure the number of seconds elapsed since a particular historical event. Given the date, he did the calculations in his head, providing a correct answer in as little as 20 seconds, rarely taking more than a minute. Only twice Agnes betted his answer. The first time, she required a pencil, paper, and nine minutes to calculate the number of elapsed seconds since an event that had occurred 125 years, six months, and eight days in the past. Her answer differed from his, but while proofing her numbers, she realized she had forgotten to factor in leap years. The second time, armed with the previously calculated fact that each regular year contains 3,153,600 seconds, and each leap year contains an additional 86,400, she vetted Barty's answer in under four minutes. Thereafter, she accepted his numbers without verification. 3,153,600 seconds. 3,153,600 times. 
3,153,600 seconds. How long will it take for this song to get in your mind? Is it minutes? Is it hours? Is it seconds? Is it milliseconds? Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Sing this in your bed about 3,152,600 seconds. I'm pretty confident this song's in your head, in your head, it's 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 in your head. Head. Now, when I ask that question in your uh, college courses or whatever, you'll remember it. You're welcome. In his head, not the song, but actually in the book. In his head, without apparent effort, Barty kept a running total of the number of seconds that he had been alive. And of the number of words in every book that he had read. Agnes never checked its word totals for an entire volume. However... When she cited any page in the book that he had just finished, he knew the number of words it contained. His musical abilities were most likely an offshoot of his more extraordinary talent for math. He said the music was numbers, and what he seemed to mean was that he could all but instantly translate the notes of any song into a personal numerical code, retain it, and repeat the song by repeating the memorized sequence of code. When he read sheet music, he saw arrangements in numbers. Reading about child prodigies... Agnes learned that most, if not all, math wizards also possess musical talent. To a lesser but still impressive extent, many young geniuses in the music world were also proficient at math. Barty's reading and writing skills appeared to be related to his talent for math as well. To him, language was first phonics, a sort of music that symbolized objects and ideas, and this music was then translated into written syllables using the alphabet, which he saw as a system of math, employing 26 digits instead of 10. Agnes discovered from her research that amongst child prodigies, Barty was not a wonder of wonders. Some math whizzes were absorbed by algebra and even by geometry before their third birthdays. Jaisha Heifetz became an accomplished violinist at three, and by six, he played the concertos of Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky. Ida Handel performed them when she was five. Eventually, Agnes came to suspect that for all the pleasure the boy took in math and for all his aptitude with numbers, his greatest gift and his deepest passion lay elsewhere. He was finding his way toward a destiny both more astonishing and stranger than the lives of any of the many prodigies about whom she'd read. Bartholomew's genius might have been intimidating, even off-putting, if he had not been as much child as child genius. Likewise, he would have been wearisome if impressed by his own gifts. For all his brilliance, however, he was still a boy who loved to run and jump and tumble, who swung from the backyard oak tree in a rope and tire swing, who was thrilled when given a tricycle, who giggled in delight while watching his uncle Jacob roll a shiny quarter end over end across his knuckles and perform other simple coin tricks. And although Barty was not shy, neither was he a show-off. He didn't seek praise for his accomplishments, and in fact, they were little known outside of his immediate family. His satisfaction came entirely from learning exploring, growing. And as he grew, the boy seemed content with his own company and that of his mother and his uncles. Yet Agnes worried that no children his age lived in their neighborhood. She thought he'd be happier if he had a playmate or two. Somewhere, I do, he assured her one night as she tucked him into bed. Oh, 
And where are you keeping them? Stuffed in the back of your closet? No, the monster lives in there, Barty said, which was a joke, because he had never suffered night frights of that or any sort. Ho, ho, she said, ruffling his hair. I got my own little red skeleton. Barty didn't watch much television. He had been up late enough to see Red Skelton only a few times, but that comedian always drew gales of laughter from him. Somewhere, he said, there's kids next door. Last time I looked, Miss Galloway lived to the south of us. Retired. Never married. No children. Yeah? Well, somewhere, she's a married lady with grandkids. She has two lives, huh? Lots more than two. Hundreds. Lots more. Selma Galloway, woman of mystery. Could be, sometimes. Retired professor by day, Russian spy by night. Probably not anywhere a spy. As early as this evening, here at her son's bedside, Agnes began dimly to sense that certain of these amusing conversations with Barty might not be as fanciful as they seemed. That he was expressing in a childlike way some truth that she had assumed was fantasy. And to the north of us, Agnes said, drawing him out, Janie Carter went off to college last year, and she's her only child. The Carters don't always live there, he said. Oh? Do they rent their homes out to pirates with little pirate children? Clowns with little clown children? Barty giggled. <laughs> You're Red Skelton. And you've got a big imagination. Not really. I love you, Mommy. He yawned and dropped off into sleep with a quickness that always amazed her. And then... Everything changed in one stunning moment, changed profoundly and forever. The day before Christmas, along the California coast, although sun gilded the morning, clouds gathered in the afternoon, but no snow would ease sled runners across these roofs. Pecan cakes, cinnamon custard pies boxed in insulated coolers, gifts wrapped with bright paper and glittery ribbons. Agnes Lampion made deliveries to those friends who were on her list of the needful, but also the friends who were blessed with plenty. The sight of each beloved face, each embrace, each kiss, each smile, each cheerfully spoken Merry Christmas at every stop fortified her heart for the sad task awaiting her when all gifts were given. Barty rode with his mother in her green Chevrolet station wagon. Because the cakes, pies, and gifts were too numerous to be contained in one vehicle, Edom followed them in his flashier yellow and white 54 Ford County Squire. Agnes called their two-car parade a Christmas caravan, which appealed to Barty's sense of magic and adventure. Repeatedly, he turned in the seat and rose to his knees to look back at his Uncle Edom, waving vigorously. So many stops, too little at each, a dazzle of Christmas trees decorated every one to a different taste. Offers of butter cookies and hot chocolate or lemon crisp and eggnog. Morning chats and bright kitchens steeped in wonderful cooking odors and, in the chillier afternoon, Good wishes exchanged in front of hearth fires, gifts accepted as well as given, cookies taken in tray for pecan cakes, silver barrels and hark howler bells and jingle bell rock on the radio. Therewith, they arrived at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Christmas Eve, their deliveries completed before Santa's had begun. His country squire laden with cookies, plum cakes, homemade caramel corn with almonds, and gifts, Edom drove directly home from Obadiah Shepard's place, which had been their final stop. He roared away as if trying to outrun tornadoes and tidal waves. For Agnes and Barty, one stop remained, where some of the joy of Christmas would always be buried with a husband that she still missed every day, and the father that he would never know. Cypresses lined the entry drive to the cemetery. 
Tall and solemn, the trees kept guard, as though posted to prevent restless spirits from roaming out into the land of the living. Joey rested not under the stern watch of the cypresses, but near a California pepper tree. With his graceful cascading boughs, it appeared to stand in meditation or in prayer. The air was cool, but not yet cold. A faint breeze smelled of the sea beyond the hill. At the grave, they arrived with red and white roses. Agnes carried the red, and Barty brought the white. In spring, summer, and fall, they brightened the grave with the roses that Edom grew in the side yard. In this less rose-friendly season, these Christmas bouquets have been purchased at a flower shop. From his early adolescence, Edom was drawn to gardening, taking special pleasure in the cultivation of hybrid roses. He had been only 16 when one of his blooms earned first place in the flower show. When his father learned about the competition, he regarded Edom's pursuit of the prize as a grievous sin of pride. The punishment left Edom bedridden for three days, and when he came downstairs at last, he discovered that his father had torn out all the rose bushes. Eleven years later, a few months after marrying Agnes, Joey mysteriously invited Edom to accompany him on a little drive, and took his bewildered brother-in-law to a nursery. They returned home with 50-pound bags of special mulch, jars of plant food, and an array of new tools. Together, they stripped the sod from the side yard, turned the soil, and prepared the ground for the rich variety of hybrid starter plants that were delivered the following week. This rosarian was Edom's only relationship with nature that did not inspire terror in him. Agnes believed that Joey's enthusiasm for the restoration of the garden was, in part, the reason why Edom had not turned as far inward as Jacob, and why he had remained better able than his twin to function beyond the walls of his apartment. The roses filling the countersunk vases in the corner of Joey's gravestone were not Edom grown, but they were Edom bought. He had visited the florist himself, personally selecting each bloom from the inventory in the cooler, but he didn't have the courage to accompany Agnes and Barty to the grave. Does my dad like Christmas? Barty asked, sitting on the grave grass in front of the headstone. Your dad didn't just like Christmas. He loved Christmas. He started planning for it in June. If there wasn't already a Santa Claus, your father would have taken on the job. Using a clean rag that they used to polish the engraved face of the memorial, Barty said, Is he good with numbers like me? Well, he was an insurance agent, and numbers are important in that line of work. And he was a good investor, too. Not the whiz you are with numbers, but I'm sure you got some of your talent from him. Does he read Father Brown Mysteries? Crouching beside the boy as he rubbed the brighter shine onto the granite, Agnes said, Barty, honey, why are you? He stopped polishing the stone and met her stare. What? Although she would have felt ridiculous phrasing this question in these words to any other three-year-old, no better way exists to ask it of her special son. Kiddo, do you realize you're speaking of your dad in the present tense? Barty had never been instructed in the rules of grammar, but had absorbed them as the roots of Edom's roses absorb nutrients. Sure, does and is. Why? The boy shrugged. The cemetery had been mown for the holiday. The scent of fresh-cut grass grew more intense the longer Agnes met her son's radiant green-blue gaze, until the fragrance became exquisitely sweet. Honey, you do understand, of, of course you do, that, that your dad is gone. Sure, the dad was born. That's right. 
Thanks to his intelligence and his personality, Barty's presence was so great for his age that Agnes tended to think of him as being physically larger and stronger than he actually was. As the scent of grass grew more complex and even more appealing, she saw her son more clearly than she had seen him in a while. Quite small, fatherless, yet brave, burdened with a gift that was a blessing but also made a normal boyhood impossible. Forced to grow up at a faster pace than any child should be required to endure. Barty was achingly delicate, so vulnerable that when Agnes looked at him, she felt a little of the awful sense of helplessness that burdened Edom and Jacob. I wish your dad could have known you, Agnes said. Somewhere he does. At first, she thought that Barty meant his father watched him from heaven, and his words touched a tenderness in her, overlaying an arc of pain across the curve of her smile. Then the boy put new and puzzling shadings on his meaning when he said, Daddy died here, but he didn't die every place I am. His words echoed back to her from July. My cold's just here. Not every place I am. The pepper tree had been whispering in the breeze, the roses nodding their bright heads. Now a stillness came into the cemetery, as if rising from beneath the grass, from out of that city of the lost. It's lonely for me here, said Barty, but not lonely for me everywhere. From a bedtime conversation in September, somewhere there's kids next door. And somewhere, Selma Galloway, their neighbor, was not a spinster, but a married woman with grandchildren. A sudden strange weakness, a formless dread, dropped Agnes out of her crouch and onto her knees beside the boy. Sometimes it's sad here, Mommy, but it's not sad every place you are. Lots of places, Daddy's with you and me, and we're happier, and everything's okay. Here again were those peculiar grammatical constructions, which sometimes she thought were just the mistakes that even a prodigy could be expected to make, and which sometimes she interpreted as expressions of fanciful speculations, but which lately she had suspected were of a more complex, and perhaps darker, nature. Now her dread took form, and she wondered if the personality disorders that had shaped her brother's lives could have roots not just in the abuse they had taken from their father, but also in a twisted genetic legacy that can manifest again in her son. In spite of his great gifts, Barty might be destined for a life limited by a psychological problem of a unique, or at least different, nature, first suggested by these occasional conversations that seem not fully coherent. And in a lot of somewheres, Barty said, things are worse for us than here. Some somewheres you died too when I was born, so I never met you either. These statements sounded so convoluted and so bizarre to Agnes that they nourished her growing fear for Barty's mental stability. Please, sweetie. Please don't. She wanted to tell him not to say these queer things, not to talk this way, yet she couldn't speak those words. When Barty asked her why, as inevitably he would, she would have to say that she was worried that something might be terribly wrong with him. But she couldn't express this fear to her boy. Not ever. He was the lintel of her heart the keystone of her soul, and if he failed because of her lack of confidence in him, she herself would collapse into ruin. Sudden rain spared her the need to finish the sentence. A few fat drops drew both their faces to the sky, and even as they rose to their feet, this brief, light paradiddle of sprinkles gave way to a serious drumming. Let's hurry, kiddo. Bearing roses upon their arrival, they hadn't bothered with umbrellas. Besides, although the sky glowered, the forecast had predicted no precipitation. Here, the rain. 
but somewhere we're walking in sunshine. This thought startled Agnes, disturbed her, yet, inexplicably, it also poured a measure of warm comfort into her chilled heart. Their station wagon stood along the service road, at least a hundred yards from the grave. With no wind to harry it, the rain fell as plumb straight as the strands of a beaded curtain. And beyond those pearly veils, the car appeared to be a shimmering dark mirage. Monitoring Barty from the corner of her eye, Agnes paced herself to the strides of his short legs, so she was drenched and chilled when she reached the station wagon. The boy dashed her to the front passenger door. Agnes didn't follow him because she knew that he would politely but pointedly express frustration if any attempt was made to help him with the task that he could perform himself. By the time Agnes opened the driver's door and slumped behind the steering wheel, Barty levered himself onto the seat beside her. Grunting, he pulled his door shut with both hands as she jammed the key into the ignition and started the engine. She was sopping, shivering. Water streamed from her soaked hair down her face as she wiped at her beaded eyelashes with one dripping hand. As the fragrance of wet wool and sodden denim rose from her sweater and jeans, Agnes switched on the heater and angled the veins of a middle vent towards the Barty. Honey, turn that other vent towards yourself. I'm okay. You'll catch pneumonia, she warned, reaching across the boy to flip the passenger side's vent towards him. You need the heat, mommy. Not me. And when she finally looked directly at him, blinked at him, her lashes flicking off a spray of fine droplets, Agnes saw that Barty was dry. Not a single jewel of rain glimmered in his thick, dark hair or on the baby-smooth planes of his face. His shirt and sweater were as dry as if they had just been taken off a hanger from a dresser drawer. A few drops darkened the legs of the boy's khaki pants, but Agnes realized this was water that had dripped from her arm as she reached across him to adjust the vent. I ran where the rain wasn't, he said. Raised by a father to whom any form of amusement was blasphemy, Agnes had never seen a magician perform until she was 19, when Joey Lampion, then her suitor, had taken her to a stage show. Rabbits plucked out of top hats, doves conjured from sudden plumes of smoke, assistants sawn in half and mended to walk again. Every illusion that had been old even in Houdini's time was a jaw-dropping amazement to her that evening. Now she remembered a trick in which the magician had poured a pitcher of milk into a funnel fashioned from a few pages of a newspaper, causing the milk to vanish when the funnel, still dry, was unrolled to reveal ordinary newsprint. The thrill that had quivered through her that evening measured one on the Richter scale compared to the full ten-point sense of wonder quaking through her at the sight of Barty, as dry as if he had spent the afternoon perched fireside. Although rain pasted to her skin, the fine hairs rose on the nape of her neck. The goose flesh crawling across her arms had nothing to do with her cold, wet clothes. When she tried to say, how... The howl of speech eluded her, and she sat as mute as if no words had passed her lips ever before. Desperately trying to collect her wits, Agnes gazed out at the deluge graveyard, where the mournful trees and mass monuments were blurred by pouring streams ceaselessly spilling down the windshield. Every distorted shape, every smear of color, every swath of light and shudder of shadows resisted her attempts to relate them to the world she knew, as the shimmering before her were the landscape of a dream. She switched on the windshield wipers. Repeatedly, in the arc of clear glass, the graveyard was revealed in sharp detail, and yet the place remained less than fully familiar to her. 
Her whole world had been changed by Barty's dry walk in wet weather. That's just an old joke, she heard herself saying, as from a distance. You didn't really walk between the drops. The boy's silvery giggles rang as merrily as sleigh bells, his Christmas spirit undampened. <laughs> Not between, Mommy. No one could do that. I just ran where the rain wasn't. She dared to look at him again. He was still her boy, as always, her boy, Bartholomew, Barty, her sweetie, her kiddo. But he was more than she had ever imagined her boy to be, more than merely a prodigy. How, Barty? Dear Lord, how? Don't you feel it? His head cocked, inquisitive look, dazzling eyes as beautiful as his spirit. Feel what? she asked. The way things are. Don't you feel... All the way things are? Ways? I don't know what you mean. Gee, you don't feel it at all? She felt the car seat under her butt, wet clothes clinging to her, the air humid and cloying, and she felt the terror of the unknown, like a great lightless void on the edge of which she teetered. But she didn't feel whatever he was talking about, because the thing he felt made him smile. Her voice the only dry thing about her thin and parched and cracked, and she expected dust to plume out of her mouth. Feel what? Explain it to me. He was so young and untroubled by life that his frown could not carve lines in his smooth brow. He gazed out at the rain and finally said, Boy, I, I don't have the right words. Although Barty's vocabulary was far greater than that of the average three-year-old, and though he was reading and writing at an eighth-grade level, Agnes could understand why words failed him. With her greater fund of language, she had been rendered speechless by his accomplishment. Honey, have you ever done this before? He shook his head. I didn't know I could. You never knew you could walk where the rain wasn't? Nope, not until I needed to. Hot air gushing out of the dashboard vents brought no warmth to Agnes's chilled bones. Pushing a tangle of wet hair away from her face, she realized that her hands were shaking. What's wrong? Barty asked. I'm a little... a little bit scared, Barty. Surprise raised his eyebrows and his voice. Why? Because you can walk in the rain without getting wet. Because you walk in some other place and God knows where that place is or whether you could get stuck there somehow. Get stuck there and never come back. And if you could do this, there's surely other impossible things you can do. And even as smart as you are, you can't know the dangers of doing these things nobody could know. And then and then there and then there are the people who will be interested in you if they knew you could do this. Scientists who would want to poke at you and worse than the scientists, dangerous people who would say the national security comes before a mother's right to her child. People who might steal you away and never let me see you again, which which would be like death to me because I want you to have a normal, happy life, a good life. And I want to protect you and watch you grow up and be the fine man I know you will be because I love you more than anything. And you're so sweet and you don't realize how suddenly, how horribly things can go wrong. She thought all that, but she closed her eyes and said, I'll be OK. Give me a second here, all right? There's nothing to be scared about, Barty assured her. She heard the door. And when she opened her eyes, 
the boy had already slid out of the car, into the downpour again. She called him back, but he kept going. Mommy, watch! He turned the deluge with his arms held out from his sides. Not scary! Breath repeatedly catching in her throat, heart thudding. Agnes watched her son through the open car door. Turning in circles, he tipped his head back, presenting his face to the streaming sky, laughing. She could see now what she hadn't seen when running with him through the cemetery, because she was looking directly at him. Yet, even seeing did not make it easy to believe. Barty stood in the rain, surrounded by the rain, pummeled by the rain, with the rain. Saturated grass squished under his sneakers. The droplets in their millions didn't bend, slip, twist magically around his form, didn't hiss in the steam a millimeter from his skin. Yet he remained as dry as baby Moses floating on the river in a mother-made ark of bulrushes. The night of Barty's birth, when Joey actually lay dead in the pickup fast Pontiac, as a paramedic had rolled Agnes's gurney to the back door of the ambulance, she had seen her husband standing there. Untouched by that rain as her son was untouched by this. But Joey dry in the storm had been a ghost or an illusion fostered by shock and loss of blood. In the late afternoon light on this Christmas Eve, Barty was no ghost. No illusion. Moving around the front of the station wagon, waving at his mother, reveling in her astonishment, Barty shouted, Not scary! Wrapped. Frightened yet wonderstruck, Agnes leaned forward, squinting between the whisking wipers. Onward he came, past a left front fender, gleefully hopping up and down, as if on a pogo stick, still waving. The boy wasn't translucent as his father's ghost had been on that drizzly January night almost three years ago. The same drowned light of this gray afternoon that revealed the gravestones and the dripping trees also revealed Barty, and no radiance from another world shunned spectrally through him as it is shunned through Joey, dead and risen. To the window in the driver's door, Barty came with a repertoire of comic expressions, mugging at his mother, sticking one finger up his nose and exaggeratedly boring with it as though exploring for nasal nuggets. Not scary, Mommy! In reaction to a terrible sense of weightlessness, Agnes's two-fisted grip on the steering wheel grew so tight her hands ached. She held on with all her strength, as if at real risk of floating out of the car and up towards the source of the raveling skeins of rain. Beyond the window, Barty failed to do any of the things that Agnes expected of a boy not fully enough part of the day to share its rain. He didn't flicker like an image on a static pepper TV screen. He didn't shimmer like a phantom figure in Sahara heat or blur like a reflection of a steam clouded mirror. He was as solid as any boy. He was in the day, but not in the rain. He was moving toward the back of the car. Turning in her seat, craning her neck, Agnes tried to keep her son in sight. She lost track of him. Fear knocked, knocked on the door of her heart because she was sure that he had vanished the way ships supposedly disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. Then she saw him coming forward along the pasture side of the car. Her awful sense of weightlessness became something much better, a buoyancy, an exhilarating lightness of spirit. Fear remained with her. Fear for Barty. Fear for the future and of the strange complexity of creation that she had just glimpsed. But wonder and wild hope now tempered it. He arrived at the open door, grinning. No Cheshire cat grin, hanging disembodied on the air, teeth without tabby, but a grin with full Barty. Into the car he climbed. One boy. Small. 
fragile, dry. 916-633-1537, Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on uh, Spotify. Also leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts, and then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.